Revelation chapter 2 there, verses 12 to 17. And we're thinking, as we consider this letter to the church in Pergamum tonight, our theme is the committed and the compromised. The committed and the compromised. <clears throat> the Lord Jesus once said that a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. And of course he was talking in, in the Sermon on the Mount. He was giving a picture of the church and our witness to the world. How we are to be distinct in the world in which we are placed. But the city of Pergamum was literally a city set on a high hill. Unmistakable for miles around. Like most places mentioned in the seven letters to seven churches, Pergamum was a proud, modern, thriving city full of entertainment and modern culture. It was a very hard city to penetrate and conquer, of course, because it was up on a hill. But by God's grace, the gospel of Jesus Christ penetrated Pergamum. A church had been planted in the midst of the wealth and idolatry and hubbub of this lively city. Pergamum then was part of the fulfilment of Jesus' command to his disciples before he left the earth when he said, Go and make disciples of all the nations. Jesus' followers were to go wherever they possibly could with the good news of salvation. But Jesus didn't just send out his people and then forget about them. As we're seeing in this mini-series within Revelation, the letters to the seven churches, Jesus remains deeply, personally interested and involved in the life of his church. He sees the good and he sees the bad. And to these seven churches in Asia, Jesus has timely assessments for all churches in all places. Notice Jesus' words in verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Not just to Pergamum, but to all churches. Part of what that means is that there is something in each of these letters for all of us. And so let's see then what Jesus says to us via his letter to the church up on the hill in Pergamum. First of all, let's consider that Jesus knows the church's challenges. Jesus knows the church's challenges. It can be very convicting sometimes for someone to say, I know. Maybe a parent says to an unwitting child, I know what you've been up to. And so when you hear them say, I know, it's, it's convicting. Uh, but sometimes when someone says, I know, it's encouraging. It's reassuring. And for the church in Pergamum, it was encouraging to hear Jesus say this. Verse 13 he says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. What he's saying, friends, is that he knows that they live in, incredibly, in an incredibly difficult place. In fact, Jesus calls the city of Pergamum Satan's throne. Satan's throne. And when you hear a little bit about what Pergamum was like, you can understand why Jesus would describe it that way. Somewhere between 60 to 100,000 people lived in Pergamum during its heyday. And again, it was a very wealthy city. A city where property values were probably through the roof. One preacher says that Pergamum was a bit of a party town. A bit of a, a Las Vegas perhaps. Uh, though the wealthy citizens tended to keep it very exclusive. 
not just anyone got to go into the temples and theatres of Pergamum. Speaking of temples, there were a lot of them. There was a temple to Dionysius, the god of wine, and to Athena, the Greek goddess of war. And again, as we're seeing throughout these letters, at the time this letter was written, worship of the Roman emperor was becoming more and more common. Particularly in Pergamum, because Pergamum was the headquarters for the Roman government and administration in the wider region. Perhaps the centerpiece of the city at its time was a huge and magnificent building, which was a temple to the Greek god Zeus. It was a temple kind of looked like a giant altar to Zeus, and people would worshippers would come from miles around to this magnificent building. Also very popular in Pergamum was the cult of Asclepius. Asclepius, A-S-C-L-E-P-I-U-S. Asclepius was the Greek serpent god associated with physical healing. I believe this, this serpent god could heal you. And in honor of Asclepius, Pergamum had what you might call a spa and retreat center. 2,000 years ago. Uh, it had an auditorium. This, this relaxation centre had an auditorium. It had sleep chambers. It had water therapy. And apparently some of the locals even thought that one of the springs in this spa centre was the fountain of life or of youth itself. So friends, here's a city set on a hill. A city where the Roman government, the mightiest human power on earth at the time, dwells. Where a false god with the symbol of a serpent dwells. And where there is a huge temple to perhaps the most popular Greek god of them all. Zeus. Along with all kinds of other gods and goddesses. It's easy to see isn't it? Why Jesus would call Pergamum the throne of Satan. Whether through the Roman government, false gods or the sinful lifestyles of the city. Jesus knew the challenges facing the Pergamum church as they preached a message and lived a lifestyle totally different from all of this. Jesus knew, he knew that some of them were losing their jobs, having hard conversations with unbelieving family and friends, being accused of being unpatriotic for their refusal to worship Zeus, Or the Roman Emperor Jesus knew. In fact he mentions how much it has already cost some Christians in Pergamum to be faithful to him. Verse 13. He says you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Notice he repeats again there where Satan dwells. We don't know much about Antipas. Some traditions suggest that he was roasted alive in a great bronze bull. Uh, That was apparently how he may have died. I wasn't able to double check that. But one way or another, Antipas died for Jesus. And notice in fact that Jesus calls Antipas my faithful witness. That's actually how Jesus himself was described back in Revelation 1 verse 5. What an honour, what a privilege for Antipas To be described the same way as Jesus. A faithful witness. Did not compromise on his faith. Even though it cost him his life. Just as his saviour did. 
So Jesus commends and encourages the Pergamum church friends. He says, you hold fast my name. He says, I know all the challenges you live with on a daily basis. I know the daily pressures from the world. I know the sense of intimidation you feel in a place in which Satan was clearly, powerfully at work. I know you're holding fast, says Jesus. And friends, is that not such a great encouragement for us? Perhaps we're not living with quite the same daily intensity of the city of Pergamum. Although in some parts of our country we're maybe not far off it. But nonetheless we do live with a sense of growing pressure from an ungodly culture. There would have been people in Pergamum who just couldn't understand why Christians couldn't go along with some token emperor worship or Zeus worship even if they spent Sundays worshipping their own God and so-called saviour. And similarly today, there are people who just don't understand why Christians won't wave the rainbow flag, just show some token acceptance and tolerance of those kinds of lifestyles, even if we do and say what we like when we go to church. Jesus says to us today, I know that as a church, You've spoken out against the unjust and ungodly laws that the government has brought in regarding marriage and life and the Lord's Day and gambling and all kinds of other things. I know that in a society worshipping at the altars of entertainment or sexuality or individualism, you're still calling people to repentance and to worship of the one true God. Perhaps some of you need to hear Jesus say to you today, I know that you're living with unbelieving parents or an unbelieving spouse or children and you're holding fast to my faith and you're proclaiming my name to them and perhaps all you're getting is hatred as a result. Boys and girls, Jesus knows when you don't laugh at what everyone else is laughing at in school, when you don't say things that you know you shouldn't say that others around you do say. When you're not afraid to tell people that your saviour is Jesus Christ. He knows that. And he's pleased when that's the case, boys and girls. And adults as well. Jesus knows the challenges that his churches face. Not just from societies that are physically violent. But from societies like ours that pressure us in other ways. That are full of idolatry and expecting us to join in. Societies that have become A stronghold of Satan. One writer simply says, In Satan's kingdom, we must still confess Christ is Lord. In Satan's kingdom, we must still confess Christ is Lord. That's what many of the believers, not all of them as we'll see, but many of the believers in Pergamum were doing. And that's what we have to do today, no matter how unpopular or out of touch or pressured the church may be. The Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter 4, 4-5, They are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Peter says you might be being judged today for not doing or saying or believing what people around you are doing. But the judgment that really counts is the judgment of Jesus Christ, and it will come sooner or later. 
So Jesus does have encouragement for the Pergamum church. And yet, friends, Jesus also warns this church that they are in danger of facing judgment themselves. And so let's think secondly about the fact that Jesus commands repentance for the church's compromise. We've seen that Jesus knows the church's challenges, but Jesus also commands repentance for the church's compromise. Look at the words of verse 14, words that should cause any Christian deep concern. Verse 14, Jesus says, But I have a few things against you. I have a few things against you. And just as we considered, friends, when we looked at Ephesus a few weeks ago, imagine being there to hear that. Imagine sitting in the room while your pastor reads out those words from Jesus. It should be highly concerning to any Christian to hear Jesus say that there are things that if we do them or if we say them or if we believe them, he holds it against us. What did Jesus have against the church in Pergamum? Well, whilst they, many of them had stood firm against pressure from outside the church, they had, feel, they had failed to guard against compromise inside the church. They had withstood pressure from outside the church. They had compromised inside the church. In some areas of life, compromise is a good thing, maybe even a necessary thing. Two children want the same toy. Mum or dad has to intervene. The compromise is that one child gets the toy for half an hour and then the other child gets it if they're still interested in it at that point. Maybe a compromise in the workplace means that two colleagues share responsibility for a project rather than one of them doing it alone. But friends, when it comes to what the church accepts and what it rejects, compromise can be poison. Compromise can be poison. David Levy says, Compromise has been a cancer in the church since its inception. A cancer in the church. And Pergamum proves that. They had begun putting up with certain teachings, accepting certain behaviour, as if it was perfectly in line with Christian belief and with the biblical truth, and yet things that were sinful. Jesus says in particular, verse 14, You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. We read part of the story of Balaam earlier. I know it's perhaps a lot of detail and, and maybe not a very familiar story, but it's a story that's referred to several times in both the Old and New Testament. And Jesus refers to it here. And the point of the story is that Balaam, uh, rather than just cursing the Israelites, he ended up suggesting to the king of Moab, well, why don't you put some good-looking women in front of the Israelite men? Women who will encourage them and entice them into idolatry into sexual sin and into worshipping false gods. You see, friends, for the church in Pergamum, just like the church in Europe 2,000 years later, no one else believed that sexual intercourse was a gift reserved for marriage between one man and one woman. No one else in Pergamum believed that. Just as very few people beyond the church of Jesus Christ believed that in the UK or Ireland in 2021. 
Our society says we've evolved to get to where we are in terms of our attitude to sex and gender. But Jesus shows us here there's nothing new under the sun. The Moabites thousands of years ago, they were way ahead of us. The Pergamites 2,000 years ago, they got there long before us as well. The temptation for the church today is the same as it was then. Compromise. Compromise. Ultimately, false teaching hadn't got a foothold in the Pergamum church because of government pressure or pressure from the guilds or the pagan temples. It had come into the church via the back door, so to speak. By individual members or maybe a group of members in the Pergamum church saying, what's the harm? What's the harm? And Jesus commands the church to repent in verse 16. He commanded the Ephesians to repent of their lack of love. He commands the Pergamites to repent of their compromise with worldly wisdom and worldly practices. And friends, it's very important to understand here, Jesus is not just telling the people who were sleeping around or going to the pagan temples to repent, though they certainly should repent. But Jesus is telling the church leaders to repent as well. He's telling the whole church to repent. If a local church suddenly realizes that there are those in her number living contrary to God's word, claiming that their lifestyles or their behavior is perfectly in line with what the Bible says, that compromises the whole church. The witness of the whole congregation is at stake. And it's the elders, the leaders that God has raised up in that church that need to deal with it. Exercising church discipline of members who compromise can be one of the most difficult things a church has to do, but it is something that a true church of Jesus Christ must do. We must fear God more than men. We must care enough about the spiritual well-being of that compromised person or people that however convinced they may be that their behavior is acceptable, that ultimately it will damn them to an eternity of punishment If they do not repent. And we need to realise friends. That more than ever. This is a a threat. And this is a danger for us. In the society in which we live. And whilst, whilst we might run the risk of sounding bigoted. Or targeting one particular issue. Often and oftentimes. It is the sexuality issue. That compromises the church. And you can find church leaders in Northern Ireland today. Who have marched in pride parades. And who have excused away parts of scripture and twisted scripture to accept and accommodate lifestyles and sexual practices that are totally against what God and his word has commanded. And ultimately we must care enough to hurt people's feelings or to have people say whatever they might say about us. We must care enough about them to call them to repent And to save them potentially from eternal punishment for their sin. Church discipline, rightly and appropriately exercised, is is an act of love. It's a desire to see compromised Christians repent and come back. And people say, well, that doesn't sound very loving. That doesn't sound very tolerant. 
Friends, if we're more tolerant than Jesus, we're too tolerant. If we're more tolerant than Jesus, we're too tolerant. We'll see that more, God willing, in a couple of weeks when we come to the next letter. In fact, look what Jesus says if the church in Pergamum doesn't deal with the compromise in their midst. Verse 16, he says, if you don't deal with it, if not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. The sword of my mouth. Jesus also began the letter by saying in verse 12, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Jesus has again chosen an image that would have meant uh, something in particular to the church that he's speaking to. As I mentioned earlier, the Roman government had a headquarters in Pergamum. And the sword in that culture was the symbol of government authority and particularly the authority to put wrongdoers to death. Paul talks about the government bearing the sword in Romans 13. Well, Jesus is saying, as much as the Romans have great power and authority in Pergamum, I have even greater power and authority in Pergamum. My sword is more deadly and more powerful than theirs. And when Jesus says, I will come to you soon, he's not just talking about his return at the end of history. Uh, We'll see throughout Revelation that Jesus is able and willing to come in a sense Maybe not physically, but through the power of his word, the power of his spirit, his power to arrange all circumstances and providences in our lives. And he will deal with sin in his church when and how he sees fit. He says here that he's willing to come to Pergamum and war against them with the sword of his mouth. Friends, the visible church is not exempt from the judgment of Jesus. He is willing to judge and punish if professing Christians do not repent. We don't just believe in a gentle Jesus, meek and mild, though he is. We also believe in a Jesus who hates sin. Who hates sin. Here is incentive for each of us to search our hearts To take sin seriously. To not allow it to get even a foothold in our lives, friends. Lest we end up compromising entirely. Trying to make excuses for the lifestyle or the choices that we make. And perhaps this word this evening is Jesus graciously nipping sin in the bud. Perhaps there's something that we are beginning to get too comfortable with in our lives. And before it goes any further... Jesus, by the power of his sword tonight, is calling us to repent. Sadly, in the wider region of Pergamum today, the light of the gospel has almost gone out. Not completely gone out in the land of Turkey, but in that area of Pergamum today, there is no church. The church did not take seriously the commands of Jesus. What will Jesus have to do in our lives before we repent? How long will we have to withhold blessing? How deep will he have to cut with his sword? Friends, rather than have that, may we cry out like the psalmist this evening, Search me, O God, and know my heart. See if there is any wicked way within me. Lead me in the way that is ever that is eternal. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 
Jesus knows the church's challenges. Jesus commands repentance for the church's compromise. Thirdly and finally this evening, Jesus will welcome home the church that conquers. Jesus will welcome home the church that conquers. Look at verse 17. Verse 17. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on that stone. Jesus makes promises in every letter to those who conquer. And that in itself, friends, should be an encouragement to us. It is possible to conquer compromise. It is possible to come back in faith to the Lord Jesus. And so Jesus, in love and grace, provides the promise of reward for those who remain faithful to him. He says he will give his faithful church three things. Hidden manna, a white stone, and a new name. Hidden manna, a white stone, and a new name. And you might think, well, to be honest, I've never quite longed for hidden manna, a white stone, or a new name. Why, why is all of this such good news? What does all of this mean? Well, manna, of course, was the bread that fell from heaven to feed the Israelites for 40 years in the wilderness. That was how God nourished and sustained his people. Uh, and some of that manna, we're told in the scriptures, it was kept, it was hidden away inside the Ark of the Covenant as sort of a permanent memorial uh, for God, of, of how God provided for his people. But of course, in John chapter 6, Jesus on one occasion announced that he himself is the bread of life, just as the manna came down from heaven. Jesus himself is the bread that came down from heaven, that nourishes our souls, that is life-giving. And so Jesus is saying to the believers in Pergamum, uh, the believers who didn't have to, he's saying to them, you don't have to eat food sacrificed to idols to gain acceptance, to be appreciated. You have the bread of heaven. You have me to nourish your souls. He also says that he'll give them a white stone. Uh, the white stone could refer to a couple of things. <clears throat> in that culture, when someone was on trial in court, uh, the jury would vote by holding out either a white stone, declaring the defendant innocent, or a black stone, declaring the defendant guilty. And so it could be that Jesus is saying here, the city of Pergamum might have condemned the church, but I declare the church innocent if, of course, she repents and doesn't compromise. And perhaps Jesus is saying to a pressurized and hated and persecuted church, maybe he's saying to them, it's my verdict that really counts. Another possibility is that the white stone is Jesus inviting his faithful followers into eternal fellowship with him. As I mentioned earlier, Pergamum was an exclusive city. Sometimes for special events, people would be given a white stone if they were invited, if they were welcome to come to the particular entertainment or whatever it was that was on in the city that night. A bit like showing your ticket before you get into a concert. The Christians who didn't compromise in Pergamum were less and less likely to be welcomed in to the city's social scene. But Jesus is saying to them, you are welcome into the most special and wonderful event of all. You're welcome to feast with me in the marriage supper of the Lamb in the new heavens and the new earth. 
That's what lies ahead for those who do not compromise and who remain faithful to Jesus. An invitation to the party to end all parties. Jesus also says he will give them a new name. Think of Paul or Peter or Abraham. They all had their names changed when they entered into a relationship with God. They were new in their souls and that was reflected in their names. And so friends, ultimately in these three things that Jesus mentions here, the point is simple. Don't compromise to be accepted by the citizens of the world when you could be accepted by the king of the world. Don't compromise to be accepted by the citizens of the world when you could be accepted by the king of the world. Don't settle for the acceptance of a fickle culture, a culture that is constantly changing its opinions about who's important and who's accepted and who isn't. About what we should celebrate and what we shouldn't. All of that is passing away. It's here today, friends, and it's gone tomorrow. Some of us may well live to see the rainbow flag gone and some other cause up in its place that we also can't agree with. It's here today. It's gone tomorrow. If you don't believe me, just take a look at Pergamum today. That mighty temple of Zeus that I mentioned earlier, an attraction for miles around, it's gone. The hillside upon which that city sat is now covered in rubble. The amphitheater and the spa and the treatment center are silent and empty. The world is passing away. In our culture today, there might be an increasing number of doors that are shut to us as Christians. Opportunities that aren't given to us. Unfair judgments made against us. But do you want to know that you're accepted into the kingdom that will last forever? That you'll be declared not guilty by the judge who holds a two-edged sword in his hand? And dear friend, repent. Do not compromise Hold fast to the Lord Jesus Christ. He holds out an open invitation today to join him at his table. To sit with him at a celebration that will never end. At the feast to end all feasts in the new heavens and the new earth. Since Jesus holds out that wonderful invitation, let's not compromise with this foolish world. Let's hold fast our faith. Let's be conquerors rather than compromisers. Let's put our faith in Calvary Hill, not on the folks on the hill or the latest fashion or fad coming over the hill. Let's believe the Lord Jesus who says, I offer you hidden manna, a white stone and a new name, assurance of sin forgiven and eternal life that can never be taken away if only, if only you hold fast my faith. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen.